invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of 2 Samuel. We come this evening to chapter 3 as we're working our way through this Old Testament historical book. And last week, we saw the very first battle between the house of David and the house of the defeated king Saul. Now Saul's son Ishbosheth has claimed the right of kingship over all Israel, including Judah. David is the king over Judah. And in their very first battle, these two generals who went against each other, Joab and Abner, see one of them come out, definitely the overwhelming victor. Joab wins, and so the house of David wins. At this point in the narrative, in chapter 3, the chronicler simply summarizes for us there were a lot more battles and things basically go in David's favor. And we're going to consider together what this means for us. But do note, the way that he demonstrates the gathering strength of David might be unexpected. He does so not by telling us all of the different battles. And I know that some people like that sort of thing. But instead he tells us a list of marriages And that is not how, perhaps, you would expect the house of David to grow. And so we give attention to the word beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ethriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon us. Heavenly Father, you are good and your word is rich and we ask this evening that you would please give us an appetite to receive wisdom from the scriptures by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would guide us on our path, provide light. We ask that you would give us an increase of faith as we look upon the growing strength of Christ in his house foretold in these things, and are reminded that you make use even of sinners like us. Give us great joy in this, Father. Renew us for another week through your word. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The basic theme of this text is stated in a straightforward way in verse 1, where it says, David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. That is the main point of this text, and if you lose sight of that, then you will not receive all the blessings it has to give. The main thing here is that God is making good on his covenant promises. When he says he's going to do a thing, and when he promises, then he does. And he had promised David that he was going to be king over all. And so it was inevitable. The question would be how. What means would God make use of in order to bring about these things that he had promised? And through this passage, the Holy Spirit invites you tonight, he draws you in to consider the means 
that God, through David, made use of. We have to make a distinction here. God can make use of certain means and not be corrupt in doing so. He often employs people who themselves have bad motives. And they commit sin and they do all kinds of nasty things. And yet God can use them towards his end without being sullied by that at all. What are the means that God uses here and how does that compare or contrast with what we know of Jesus Christ as the true, the final David? What implication does that have for us in terms of how we live in this world? All of these are ideas built into this surprisingly compact genealogical record. And yet these are ideas that we have to wrestle with this evening. As we do so, we're going to look at the text under two main headings. And I'll announce each of them as we come to them. The first being this. Consider with me how David's house gained strength. The text tells us that it grew stronger and stronger. And of course, when it says house here, it's not children talking about his literal home, the building that he lives in. The word house here is sometimes used to speak of your family and the people loyal to you if you are a leader. It's not identical, but it's somewhat similar to the way that nowadays we can speak about a party, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and one may grow stronger or weaker. David's house are all the people who are united to him in loyalty. And his side is gaining strength. How does that happen? Well, the first part of our passage tells us that it involves a long war. And it's worth asking a question. If David is on the right side, if he is on God's side, if he's God's chosen king, why isn't it a short war? And isn't that what sometimes we want, whether we're talking about the grand scheme of God's plan for his church or just the simple blessings that we strive for? The desire for a career that glorifies God where we can serve with a good conscience? The desire for a spouse? The desire for children? There are so many good things which we feel ourselves to be on God's side for. He's declared these are good. And yet he often does not turn over the best blessings immediately. He would draw them out through a long war. That's partly that the Lord makes use of all kinds of complicated motives of others involved. But it also teaches us and it proves us in the faith to wrestle through and discover that we do genuinely desire what God wants for us in his time. And it is a way in our fallen condition, I would suppose, that he makes his blessings sweeter to us when we do finally receive them, whether in this life or in the age to come. We learn through the period of waiting how delightful a thing it is. In David's case, peace. Peace did not come to him on a silver platter. It was long, and so the Lord, even in the first place, would call us to dig in and endure for the blessings that he would promise. And God made use of true, real skills. All of the battles are not described as these obvious miracles. People are really having to wage warfare. And God makes use of somebody who developed his own skills as a military leader. David is renowned to this very day as a strategist. But on the other hand, it's not just a long string of victories in battle that lead to the strengthening of David's house. It's also a long string of marriages. A long string of marriages. And this at least raises an eyebrow to us. I think it's worth noting here, before we go any further, that the chronicler does not give his own comment at this point about whether or not David has done right. 
And children, please take note of this. In the Bible, there are many passages which we would describe as descriptive, not prescriptive. To describe something simply means to tell what happened. To prescribe something means to say, do this. Think a doctor prescribes something, says, take this medicine. A passage like this, we can understand to be descriptive of what David did, but that doesn't mean the Lord is prescribing. And in that way, we have to recognize that even the godly characters presented to us throughout Scripture are complicated, fallen, flawed people. And when we look in the Scriptures for ways to learn from them, we have, at the same time have to keep a guard up. Christ will be our measure, finally. Everything is brought back into plumb by comparison with him and the rest of the word. The chronicler doesn't tell us whether at this point it's right or wrong, but in all probability, in all probability, David's motives in taking here a list of six wives on top of the one he already had, the daughter of Saul, is probably not driven primarily by physical or emotional desire. We know that from both some of the clues in the text and what we know of the time period in which he lived. One commentator puts it this way. The diversity of David's harem, or group of wives, suggests that he was deliberately using marriages for political as well as familial reasons. He was, in fact, skillfully consolidating his power base with them. You have to appreciate this, and I imagine many of you know, in the ancient world, as indeed in some situations still to this very day in the world, those who are powerful used marriage as a means. They used marriage as a means to form alliances between different families and a way to demonstrate prestige, riches. If you can afford to not just feed and clothe, but to enrich all of these women with their attendance, because each of these women probably doesn't come just by herself, you notice that the women being named here have husbands whose names would be recognized. The fact that their husbands' names are, for the most part, mentioned. Or not their husbands, their fathers. That David has prestige, he has power. And by marrying all of these different women, ancient kings would show to others, I am a man of great substance and power. Far from assuming that people in David's time would look at this and say, oh, David should not be doing this. Maybe some people were. But are there not sins which in our own day most people will give a pass to? They're culturally accepted. And in David's day, probably many people looked at this as part of the reason why they want to get on Team David. He's clearly a powerful man, and look at all the kids that God is giving to him. He's fruitful. He's multiplying. David has power. He has connections. He has prestige. David is... I would argue here, demonstrating himself to be a shrewd kind of political operator. And if you look at the list of names before you, we remember already he had been married to Saul's daughter. David doesn't go for, per se, the, the low-hanging social fruit. He goes straight for the top. He wants to marry into the family of the king. But then in our list that we have here, by the way, it doesn't mention Saul's daughter in those lists, probably because she never had a son with David. This is a genealogical list telling us something about potential kings who will come up later in the story. 
But when we read who he marries, the first two mentioned are both born to influential southern families. Remember, where does David go first? He goes into southern Israel, and he's accepted as their king. And both of the families were prominent families. He marries into them. And then the next, the daughter of King Talmai. The Israelites were allowed to form alliances with people who were from outside of Canaan. God had forbidden that they should form alliances with people inside of Canaan in order that all of Canaan might become Israel. But they were allowed to have alliances outside, and David strategically marries the daughter of a king directly north, right on the border of Ishbosheth and Abner's capital. I don't believe that's accidental. Now you can imagine there's pressure coming not just from the south, from Judah, upon Saul's house, but also pressure from the north, from another group, multiple potential threats upon the kingdom. And so as you look in this, you see David using marriage to consolidate power. And then the fact that he has these many sons, although should be noted, he doesn't have as many sons as you might expect of so many marriages. That again is another God opens the womb. But on the other hand, commentators have used this or have pointed to the fact that there's so few sons born relative to the sheer number. Some families, my own included, produce more, um, my parents, more children by one marriage than they do with David having all of these. Probably says that David, again, didn't marry these women because he was particularly interested in them or loved them. Doesn't mean that he went out of his way to do them knowing wrong. But these sons would have represented the possibility of dynastic stability. In the ancient world, as really up to not very long ago, and still the case in some places today, if the king or the tyrant doesn't have a son, people start to worry. How will power pass down? And it'd be frightening. On the other hand, David's having more and more sons. This means the possibility of a dynasty. And the fact that they're even all different mothers means that all the different groups connected to each of these mothers each think maybe our guy is going to be the top guy. And there's more and more incentive for people to get behind David. Saul's house, by contrast, grows weaker and weaker. Think three of his sons died in one day in battle. One of the reasons why you wanted to have a lot of sons if you're in this position. Saul's house grows weaker. At this point... If there's anything that I would lay before you, it seems the text draws us, without passing its own judgment at this point, just the fact that David's house did grow stronger, not just militarily, but also politically, socially, in terms of wealth. It's at this point that I think it's appropriate to ask, was David right? I hope I've already given you some sense of the conviction of what the scripture says on this. Unequivocally, no. David did not do right in taking to himself many wives. On what basis would we say this? In the first place, God's pattern for marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. This is not incredibly deep stuff, and yet it is profound stuff, or I should say it's not complex, but it's profound. When God created, he had at his disposal all his creativity and intelligence, And he creates them male and female, and he gives Adam one wife. He says, it is not good that man is alone. I will give him four or five women. No, he says, I will give him one woman. 
God had the power. Adam, if we want to run with the imagery of the, the text, he had plenty of ribs. Had God wanted, he could have given more. We can laugh, but understand through much of history, polygamy was treated as normal. It is still treated as normal in some places today. God's pattern, however, was for one man and one woman. In the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Titus chapter 1, verse 6, it describes the qualifications of an officer in the church. And in both cases, your English translation probably says a, a husband of one wife. The literal Greek, however, is a one-woman man. So he doesn't have to be married, but if he is, one woman. He is a one-woman man. God makes clear in his word his desire. On top of that, he gives an explicit command in Deuteronomy concerning kings. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, concerning future kings which would come in Israel, it says, quote, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. David knew the law. If there was any, I mean, read Psalm 119. The whole thing is a big acrostic about the beauty of God's law. David would have known that. The king shall not take for himself many wives, lest his heart be turned away. Well, then how does David do this? I would suggest to you that he rationalized with the word many. He says, well, what is many? Many is what that guy has. Asher Bonapal, one of the great kings of the ancient world, claims to have hundreds of wives. And I mean, I have seven. That's complete. It's, you know, that's a number of perfection. However, he rationalized, recognized, you can smile and uh, smirk at him. We do the same thing. The very same verse, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, follows it up. It says, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. How much is excessive? How much they have. That's excessive, is it not? I tell you, as I was preparing, I was thinking through, it is at, at each stage, as the Lord may grant you a little more, you rationalize to yourself, this is not too much for me. I worked hard for this. This is good for others. It's good for the kingdom. And David, I can only imagine, said to himself with each of these marriages, even as he was a man of wisdom, he, and he had warning in Scripture, Jacob's many wives. And Jacob didn't try directly to get into that situation, but it happened. And Jacob describes his life at the end. He says, my years have been bitter. And the story that David would have known is one of wives constantly feeling in competition for the love of their husband. We were not created to be in competition in our own marriages. And here all of these issues built into it. David surely must have considered these things, but he says to himself, but it's for the kingdom. And we have the temptation likewise to rationalize our decisions, how we use our time, all of that. And we must bring it back with humility to the word. I don't profess to you, I know the magic amount in the case of silver and gold. But I am sure that it's probably further away from the point where we start to feel, I don't know anymore. 
whether this is what the Lord desires. Consider the results that come to David through his decisions. In the story that's laid out to us in 2 Samuel, David's many wives and children become the primary source of all of the strife in the kingdom. The primary source, and that's not David's intent. He's trying to do good for the kingdom, and yet it becomes the primary source of strife. His eldest son violates his own half-sister. His third son murders his eldest son. His fourth son tries to hatch a plot to take over David's throne. And then the other sons fall into fighting in the text. Arguably, there would have been a lot less of this if they all had the same mother. Really, part if you consider the text, part of what generates all of this infighting, plotting, who's going to be in power, all, all of this comes from a sense of alienation in the home. Now, we thank the Lord. I also come from a, a broken family and then uh, remarriage and my parents. The Lord can work wonderful things even in the midst of brokenness. But that is not his design. And where people choose to live outside of his design of one man and one woman in lifelong union, they can expect some kind of consequences. He would be an unloving God if he spared us of all the consequences. It's like the leper's curse is to not be able to feel pain. So he's always hurting himself, and he doesn't realize, and it doesn't heal. For the sake of all society and for the church, some must feel the pain of these choices in in order that others might learn. When we consider all of the sin that is inevitably involved in this, I think it helps us to look at it from another perspective. David's house grew by grace. Why did it grow? You can say, well, it's because David is scheming and doing all these things. But... We have to understand God is a powerful God. If he had wanted to, he could have blighted every effort of David. Really, David's house grows because God promised his people Israel that he would give them a ruler who did justice. And on the balance, David does. He does right by people. He's not perfect, but he does right. And this is the Lord making good on his covenant promise. That should give us some comfort. God uses sinners. God uses flawed people. He uses even unbelievers at times to do beneficial things for his kingdom. And so this is how David's house grew. At this point, we have an opportunity to compare and contrast this a little bit. This is our second and final point and a briefer point. Compare and contrast this with how Christ's house grows. And in fact, I invite you to turn and look with me at Hebrews chapter 3 in the New Testament. David's house grows in some ways by natural wisdom and fleshly wisdom. But then we see that Christ has a house too in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. There the author says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. By the way, this is one of many texts where it indirectly tells us Jesus is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Our hope is that Christ is faithful. Our hope is that he goes from strength to strength working in us. And Hebrews 3, where it says, by his faithfulness, he brings these things to pass. That tells us what we are to look to. Compare, contrast. David, Jesus. David, again, he's not a perfect image of Jesus. Jesus, how many brides does he have? One. The church is referred to again and again as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 6. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Revelation 21, verse 1. The prophet, the apostle John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In this sense, we can say Christ has taken for himself one people, not two people. The church under the new covenant did not replace the Jews. We were grafted in. There's one believing people in all ages, all who acknowledge the Messiah, Jesus. And so Christ is one people, one bride. He is utterly faithful to her. He loves her. He washes her with the word. And in this case, if we are called as image bearers of our Savior, and especially husbands, husbands are called to image Christ, David is not a perfect example in every way. Here we must look at Christ and say, we must have eyes only for our wife if we are married. Or you who are not, understand that is your calling. Faithfulness. And understand that anything else brings devastation in the people of God. Christ is faithful, and through his church, he produces heirs of the kingdom. Think about passages, for instance, like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Maybe this has confused you before. It comes up every Christmas, but usually it's not talked about. Why is Jesus, in the passage where it says he will be called the Prince of Peace, this is Isaiah 9, 6, he's also called Everlasting Father. But he is not the Father. He and the Father are one in being in essence, but they are distinct people. Every passage in the whole Bible is not talking about the Trinity all the time. And so we have to check which goggles are we using. When it says that Jesus is the everlasting Father, there are plenty of texts which speak of him begetting a people. That is, he sends forth the Holy Spirit by whom we were regenerated. Usually the scripture uses the metaphor of him as our brother. But also it uses the metaphor of him as our father in this sense. That by his life and energy, we received new life. And of his children, none of them will perish. And in the long run, all of them will turn out holy. His kingdom grows and grows. And think of the innumerable mount and the prestige which it says about him that he can provide for all of them. Millions upon millions. Christ is a great king. By comparison, David, just a little blip. Jesus, a kingdom forever. None are lost. And so we go from strength 
to strength, as it says in 3.6, Hebrews 3.6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. That gives us great comfort when at times it seems as if his kingdom is not advancing, and we have to have a different prescription, a different prescription for our glasses. Every few years, I know some of you will have to go into the eye doctor and have the prescription changed a little bit. It's not that the world changed. It's that your eyes change. They change, and so we get a different set of lenses, and we look at the world a little bit differently. As you go through different circumstances, the Lord is being faithful. The world has not changed. He's doing exactly what he set out to do. The Lord is not trying to do anything. He is doing what he intended. And yet we have to come back and see it that way. Sometimes we try to look at it in terms of how much is the political order, the social order conforming. That's a part of how the kingdom is manifested. But it's definitely not the whole of it. Romans chapter 14 verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For whoever serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and is approved by men. When we want to know whether or not the kingdom is being manifested in a church, we have to ask in part, is it growing in joy in the Holy Spirit? Is it growing in peace? And that peace and joy cannot exist if you do not believe that Christ is making good, that he is indeed growing from strength to strength in what he's doing, because otherwise you're going to be angry all the time. Things are not the way I thought they should be. Peace and joy coming knowing that So much of what his plan is for us is to show us weakness, to teach us perseverance, to hand to us the gift of humility in this life before he raises us up to glory in the age to come. By way of exhortation, as we conclude, I do want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, one of the the lessons here, take heed not to rationalize your sin. Too many examples could be given And I would not mean to throw stones at any particular person. These are simply observations about the culture that we live in. Many things we rationalize, which in other places or at different times would have been thought to be unthinkable. Oh, that's obviously wrong. For instance, the Bible points out excessive, or as it said in Deuteronomy 17, excessive gold and silver. What is that? We have to ask the question, why do I want the things that I want? And what is my reason for wanting them? Do I want them for others? Augustine said, Lord, if I desire anything beside you, which I do not desire for you, I love you too little. And instead of becoming a Pharisee and suddenly, you know, creating all these artificial rules to work out how you can keep all of your things, I think it's better to say right here and now before the Lord, God, more and more fill me with generosity. I'm never going to know what the magic number is. Give me a generous heart and walk in that. Surely that is evidence of the Spirit's work in a people. And if you wonder if you're generous, go be generous, and then you are. Don't don't dwell in the question of that. Likewise, and so I will spare you. The sermon draws long. In terms of the church, however, we do not use, and Christ does not use, this marriage between him and his bride 
is an alliance of convenience in the world. And the church has to be careful of doing that as well. That we keep a clear distinction in our spiritual purpose in the world. I see it in different ways. I remember being invited to religious gatherings where they invite all the pastors in the city from every faith, period, if indeed we call these faiths, to all come together and pray together. And the temptation is, you know, we, we're going to rub shoulders and maybe the church gains influence and we have to lock hands. Did Christ suddenly grow weak in all that he's doing? What if he wants us to be viewed at times as outsiders? And so we have to question how we form our alliances in this world. Finally, I draw your attention to one verse and then we'll close in prayer. I don't ask you to turn there, but listen carefully. A little bit after our text, the Lord is going to come in grace to David and he's going to tell him something, a promise that cannot be broken. He says to David, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now it's clearly not speaking of Solomon. The Solomon was a preview, because this is a son who would be born after David dies, someone in the future. In verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The father has promised Christ a kingdom. He's invited you the joy, the privilege of participating in it. Know that it will go from strength to strength. Trust that he will strengthen you. Let's pray for that even now. Our Father, we confess before you that at times we grow very weary of doing the seemingly mundane things you call us to. You call your people to gather weekly in worship. You call your people to hear the word and to sing your praise. You call your people to disciple their children and others. And all of these things at times we look and we say, how can this be how the kingdom is growing? And yet, this is your power. You do not use the, the things of fleshly wisdom. Use supernatural things to shame the powers that be, to show that you can achieve all that you desire through those things which seem low. We ask that you would give us endurance as we await beholding your kingdom and glory. We ask this not only for ourselves, but for our children and our children's children. Father, preserve for yourself your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.